Keep in touch with the Wolf Connection podcast on our Instagram handle at the Wolf Connection pod or email us your questions, comments, and guest ideas to podcast at wolfconnection.org. Thank you for your support and howls to you all. Welcome to the Wolf Connection podcast. I'm your host, John Calvin. So I'm riding solo on this one today. Stephen could not be with us, uh, but he sends his regards to our guest who is the executive director of Western Watersheds Project for seven years. He's also been the executive director for Biodiversity Conservation Alliance for a decade, and he's a freelance writer for The Hills, Seattle Times, Denver Post. You may have seen some of his work all over the place. He comes to us from Laramie, Wyoming. He is Eric Molvar. Eric, it's great to meet you finally and uh, get to chat with you. How's everything going? Oh, it's a beautiful day up here in Laramie and uh, the sun is shining and looking out across the land and waiting for the wolves to come. Nice. That's terrific. Uh, I want to, because I mentioned really the Rolodex of the things that you've done and I've seen a lot of your your work. I, I did some digging in the background, looking at some, some of your stuff in the Hills, Seattle Times. Where did you grow up and, and was writing always something that you wanted to do? Because that w- it seems like that was your first passion and still is a passion for you. Wh- where did you get the, the bug for that? Where did you really get the, you know, the itch to say, I want to write and, uh, and do some of the stuff that you were doing prior to Western Watersheds? Well, you know, I grew up on the East Coast and, and went to high school down in Texas. It couldn't be any farther from the wild country of the Northern Rockies. But I, but I then decided I wanted to go up to the University of Montana to do my bachelor's degree because uh, the fly fishing was better. And uh, at the end of that process, I spent a couple of summers bartending in Glacier National Park. And uh, I remember sitting on the front porch of the employee dorms, looking out across Lake McDonald and drinking with our with, with my coworkers. And, and we were all complaining about how weak the, the hiking guide to Glacier National Park was, because all it included were these little short day hikes, and it didn't include any of the backpacks, which are really the, the, the heart of Glacier. And, and somebody looked at me and says, well, shoot, Eric, you've hiked all these trails. Why don't you write one? And I said, I don't know. I guess I could. <laughs> and, and, and I guess the rest is history. I farmed out, uh, I wrote the manuscript when I was doing my master's research up in the University of Alaska at Fairbanks. I farmed it out to a number of different uh, uh, guidebook author companies and ended up landing with a local Montana publisher called Falcon Publishing, which is now nationwide. And uh, the Glacier book was their first comprehensive book for a national park. And so after that, they gave me contracts for pretty much anything, anywhere I wanted to go and hike for the summer. Nice. Because I, I looked up your, I think, how many books do you have? I think, is it 16? hiking books that you've that you've uh written it's 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 16 or 17 and and, and a few of them are out of print but most of them are still in print and uh and and so you know it, it's it keeps me busy to try and uh keep those books current no that's that's great and what's interesting too where on the east coast did you grow up what was the because you know you went to school in texas but where did you grow up on the east coast i was outside of uh, washington dc in maryland nice I I asked this question because a lot of it seems like the 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 guests that we've had on lately a lot of them are are East Coast relocators to the West. Uh, myself being one of them, I grew up in New York and Long Island, and Stephen was in Connecticut and he moved here. So what is what do you think it is about the West that 
especially for those of us who grew up on the East Coast, again, a lot of urban city dwelling, you know, again, Washington, D.C., New York City, all of these big cities. What's the allure of the West that ultimately gives individuals like ourselves or gave you the bug to say, I don't want to be here anymore. I want to be where the wild places are. Well, I think that's just it. You know, the Western United States is one of those few places where you have wild native ecosystems and where humans in many places are, are relatively recent in terms of controlling and, and subjugating and, and, and carving up the landscape. And if you grew up in the East Coast or the Midwest or, or the West Coast, there's a lot of private land, there's a lot of fences, there's a lot of no trespassing signs. And the Western United States has millions and millions of acres of public land, land that belongs to pretty much everybody that's supposed to be managed in trust for the benefit of the public interest that has in many cases, most if not all of its original native species of wildlife, places where humans aren't the dominant animal on the landscape and where you can actually go out onto the land and experience nature on nature's own terms. I think that that's a really important lure of the West and the Western United States is, is significant, not just for the United States, but for the entire world. If you look all around the globe, um, you find that, that human-dominated landscapes are pretty ubiquitous everywhere. If you go to Europe, they have hardly any natural areas left, and they're busily trying to rewild what they have left and, and bring it back to a natural state. But here in the United States, we had these areas that you know, didn't get enough rainfall and didn't have deep enough soils and were never good enough to farm. And so the farmers didn't want to homestead it. And it was kind of left over. And the, the federal government ended up with that as the public domain. And, and many of these lands are much the same as they would have been before the first Euro-American explorers got here. And so you can experience a little window into, you know, the, the beauty and the and the diversity of the natural world that existed before Euro-American conquest and Euro-American colonization kind of converted most of the rest of the planet into, you know, kind of human-dominated landscapes. I, I can't agree with you more. And it's such a really important point to make because when you when you go to these places, we were just talking before we started about you, you were talking or you were mentioning about Glacier. We talk about Banff National Park. We talk about Yellowstone. Yellowstone, I think, more so than most. But when you look at the diversity of folks that go through these national parks on a regular basis, on a yearly basis, monthly basis, there are a lot of individuals from other countries that come here because, like you say, these spaces aren't open like this. You can't drive through a national park with wilderness on each side for miles and miles and miles and see wildlife in their natural habitat, albeit with a road running through it. Uh, that to me just seems, do you, do you ever feel like that's something that people are always looking for? Cause obviously you just said it, that people from the East East coast move to the West cause they want to experience the open spaces. You think that's an innate, uh, something that's inside all humans is that we we've lost a little bit of that primal, that, that wild, that where we obviously co-evolved with species around the globe for, to some degree, and we're trying to get a little bit of that back, even if it's just viewing them through a scope or looking at them through a camera. Well, you know, I think over the course of 130,000 years of human evolution, 
we didn't evolve to live in cities. We didn't evolve to live in farmlands or in livestock pasture environments. We evolved to live in the wild, just like every other native species that's out there on the earth. And I think somewhere in our genetic memory or maybe in our deep subconscious, there's an urge to reconnect with that sort of natural habitat for humans. And, and to live more in a way that indigenous people still live today in many parts of the world in those secluded areas where that haven't yet been overtaken by industrialization and, and quote unquote progress. And so, you know, for me, uh, you know, I had these urges as well. And, and when I was in high school, I saw the movie Never Cry Wolf, which is a Disney movie, but it's based on a book by the famous novelist Farley Moad, who's Canadian. And in this particular narrative, uh, and, and it's a work of fiction, um, the, the protagonist is a wildlife biologist who travels north to far northern Canada to study caribou and to study wolf predation on caribou because the government believes that wolves are responsible for declines in the caribou herds. And the protagonist comes to find and, and understand through studying wolves that, that they're an intrinsic part of the native ecosystem and that they're not causing ecosystem collapse at all. And, and that was a really fascinating story to me because not only did that help inspire me to go north to Montana and then to Alaska to study moose in Denali National Park and in many ways recapitulate the same adventure that this fictional character in this Disney movie had. But when I was in the University of Montana, I did a term paper on what's, what was then called the Nelchita Herd case history. And the movie Net Never Cry Wolf came out in 1983, and it was based on a book that was, that was published in the 1960s. But it was in the middle of the 1980s when I was in college in Montana that, uh, that Tony Bergerud and Vic Van Ballenberg were having this big blow-up battle in the scientific literature over whether wolves were causing the decline of the Nelchina caribou herd in central Alaska. And what they ended up finding in the end was Van Ballenberg finally ended the argument by finding that, that even though the, uh, you know, the decline of caribou were, was correlated with, you know, high wolf population densities, um, it was actually a series of heavy wet snow winters that depressed the caribou fawning rates uh, or calving rates and so you didn't have any reproduction for several years running. The Alaska Game and Fish Department didn't realize this and continued to authorize more than 10,000 caribou permits every year. So they were they were harvesting big numbers of caribou on a declining population, which is a you know a surefire recipe for driving your population down. And it wasn't the wolves at all. And in the end, it, it was Van Ballenberg who won the argument in the scientific literature and Tony Bergerud, who up to that point had been the world's leading caribou biologist that basically kind of destroyed his own credibility by hanging on to this, this narrative that it was the wolf's fault after it had been disproven. And, and then when I went to Alaska to do my master's research, I ended up doing field research with Vic Van Ballenberg on moose and publishing one of my papers with him. So it was this, this strange um, art, you know, you know, life imitating art ex exercise. Yeah, that that's incredible, and it's it's a full circle moment for you for seeing the film, and then you're 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 in there doing the work. Why do you think it is that 
and it just seems like this narrative, and I hate to, we, we sort of beat the drum a little bit, but it's just the more individuals we speak to, the more, uh, you know, science that we hear, it really just seems that the wolf, for whatever reason, and, and there are other predators, obviously, lion, bear, that, that predate on these ungulates, we're talking about caribou, deer, elk, whatever it may be, it really seems to always fall to the wolf and they become the blaming party. Why do you think that is? I, I, you know, was in your experience throughout your, throughout your career, and we'll get to Western Watersheds Project in a minute and your professional conservation advocacy, but why do you think, is it simply just the fact that it's myth, legend, generational from Euro, you know, uh, Europeans moving across the West, you know, Americans moving across the West and, and carrying these things? Or is it just a human dominated mindset where we need to control everything everywhere? Well, I, I think it's both. And it's all rooted in those European folk tales of the big bad wolf dressing up like grandmother and, and threatening to eat little red riding hood. And the idea of the big bad wolf huffing and puffing and blowing the house down for the three little pigs. We are raised from babies with the idea that wolves are the bad guy. And this kind of message repetition gets into your brain and is difficult to let go of. And it makes it very easy for the modern day enemies of the wolf, like the livestock industry, in some cases, the state game and fish agencies who want to maximize the number of, of huntable big game species. Um, you know, it makes it easy for them to gain traction for this idea that, you know, wolves are the, the villain that needs to be controlled or managed. But the reality is that wolves are a territorial predator, which means that they manage their own population density through territoriality. And if wolves get too dense, then the young dispersing juveniles won't be able to find a territory to occupy and they'll die or be killed by other wolves. And so consequently, wolves actually need no human management. But going back to the mythos of the formation of the United States, the frontier and the settling of the frontier was very much all about the taming of the wilderness, the elimination of the scary animals that might be found there, the grizzly bears, the wolves, the bison, those things that weren't compatible with the agriculture of the time. And that manifest destiny, that idea that that the earth was out there for humans to dominate and control. It, it, it goes all the way back to the Bible. If you look in Genesis, it talks about dominion over the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And, and, and so that's baked into the, the kind of formative culture of white Euro-American expansion into the West. And so the idea was, let's eliminate all the vestiges of all of those animals that get in our way. And the wolf was enemy number one for these livestock and farming interests that were moving in and displacing and replacing the indigenous people that for, you know, since time immemorial had lived together with wolves, coexisting with them. And, and, and one of the things that I think is one of the great ironies that uh, that today's biologists and conservationists have to kind of hold in our minds is the fact that these indigenous cultures that had hunting and gathering subsistence economies had a culture and philosophy 
that allowed them to coexist with all the native wildlife in a manner that was so much more successful than anything that modern society with all of our wildlife management studies and science and, and techniques and tools in the toolbox have ever been able to replicate. We've never been as good at conservation as those original Americans that were here before Columbus. I just want to go back really quick before we continue on this point. What was it like? Because this, I think, ties back into this. The fact that there was a war scientifically, I'm going back to the to the caribou point that you were making earlier, um, and, and remind me of the 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 biologist that you that you worked with, uh, his last name? Uh, Van, Van Vollenberg. He was Van Vollenberg. So researcher. Yeah. So when you're when you see this play out in real time and you the fact that there is someone who is making the counter argument that there are other factors that could be factoring into this what was it like what did you take from working with him and understand about understanding the land about understanding the factors that go into these complex ecosystems because it's not just x or y there are probably other factors that go into it so what did you take from that experience not only from seeing it play out in real time but then working with him and then being able to take take away from that research that you ultimately did with moose and understanding the complex ecosystems that you're ultimately studying i think that the you know the primary thing that i took away from my scientific research in alaska with vic van ballenberg and with terry boyer uh, up there was that with science you're there to ask a question and test the hypothesis of what you think is going to be the answer. And whatever the answer then is, then you have to live with that answer. And if it's not what you expected, then you have to figure out why the, the results that you got diverge from the results that other scientists got in their research. So for example, in my moose research, um, I was testing the hypothesis that the more the moose were um, vulnerable to predation by wolves and grizzly bears, the more they'd be in large groups. And the, uh, the, the thought from the British bird biologist was that these groups form because the, if you have many herbivores, a few of them can stand sentry while the rest of them eat and they can spend more time eating. What I actually found was the moose in Alaska spent more time agon you know, in agonistic behavior toward each other, fighting with each other, having dominance displays toward each other, a lot less time eating. So it was actually a penalty that they paid for being in these large groups, but it paid to be in the large groups because you absolutely reduced your risk of predation, your risk of injury or death. And by learning that difference from what the British bird biologists had found in their research, science advanced. That's where you actually get science advancing and we learn something. When you keep confirming something that always has been suspected, you haven't learned very much. It's always the unexpected that ends up being the, uh, the, the, the real scientific nugget. That, uh, that that outlasts all the confirmations of, of previous, you know, kind of conventional wisdom. Right. And, and you're because you you would think and I, I think this is true of all of all scientists or biologists, especially in this field, is that you're always looking for the next, you know, what is the next thing that we haven't discovered? We want to be progressive. We want to understand because the, these let's face it, animals are always evolving and changing and doing different things. The one thing I've always heard is that if you never say, I can't remember who it was. I think it was a, a guide. It might've been somebody in Yellowstone, but basically they say, don't say a wolf does X 
because the wolf will then do X and then you're completely <laughs> off base from what it is because these animals are, are they're smart, they're complex. They're able to evolve and change with their, uh, w- with the dynamics of whether it's their ecosystem, their environment or, or their prey base, depending upon what it is. So with that being said, as you get into your professional conservation advocacy and you start writing, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of your work, and then you get started with Western watersheds, what are the, what are the things that you, obviously you, you did your research, you come back, what are you trying to educate the public more so in terms of wolves and about their role in the ecosystem in a way that is able, that is palatable? Because I think a lot of people look at sometimes scientists or biologists or anyone who's sort of on a higher perch and see that it might be talking down to what's the way that you're able to come across in a layman's terms or in a way that people can understand that this is a vital part of the ecosystem? Well, you know, we always, as conservationists, hope to bridge that divide and and uh, bring science into the public policy debate and bring that into the public debate and make it accessible to people. And quite frankly, as a scientist, I can tell you that the, that the scientific universe is full, filled with jargon and complicated, you know, concepts and and dense tenpenny words. And these things are set up as gatekeeping mechanisms intentionally. So that there's an in crowd of biologists who know what is being talked about, and then nobody else can understand it. And so it's a way to have a little club, a little social club, where you can be better than everybody else. That is not what you want when you're trying to direct the outcomes of broad public policy, because the public needs to understand the public policy. So if you're, you know, if you're speaking with a bunch of acronyms and a bunch of obscure uh, words that nobody knows, then then you can't possibly connect with people. And one of the other aspects, I think, to, to successful communication on behalf of wolves or on behalf of, of, of native plants or any other species that you might think of, is that telling stories is so important because people relate to stories. You can drop a million statistics on a person, and they might remember one or two, And the more statistics that you tell people, the less they're going to retain. So you have to actually be able to tell your story in a narrative that makes sense to them and that they can relate to. And so, you know, I mean, the wolf is an interesting one because in many ways, wolves are like people. They are a complex social mammal, just like we are. They have long-term relationships with the members of their pack just as we have long-term relationships with our family members. That's very much like us. And by the same token, wolves are the same species as the dogs that we have in our own homes that we've domesticated over the years, now called Canis lupus domesticus. The scientists have now recognized that your chihuahua is a tiny wolf. And, And so we can relate to wolves in that way as well because they've become familiar. And interestingly, some of the same behaviors that you see from wolves, you see from dogs, and in many places, the the, the people who are training dog owners how to be a good dog owner speak to them in ways that uh, that maybe you should become uh, a member of this dog's pack and and relate to this dog the way that that other pack members would. It's interesting you say that because we, a lot of times at Wolf Connection, I've seen my relationships with my dogs that I 
that before they before they passed, my relationship changed when I was working with, or that is to continue work with wolves and wolf dogs, and understanding where, where if you understand where they come from, you can understand a little bit more of the dynamics of the domesticated dog that obviously, like you say, live in our homes a little bit more. Why do you think even with that correlation and understanding that all of our dogs come from the wolf, there's still this animosity, there's still this drive to manage or exterminate from certain par- parts of the of the country, there's still these feelings there. Is that a reflect? What have you seen? I, I mean, to me, I feel like there's a lot of reflection, and you said it just before. I think there's some reflection with humans to wolves and that they see some, whatever they maybe feel or see is a reflection upon themselves. And maybe that's something that's uncomfortable. I don't know if that's how you feel or what have you encountered with people who, if this question ever gets posed, you have two or three dogs at home. Why would you go and want to trap, shoot, hunt, kill the wild, you know, the wild cousin where it comes from? One of the things that complicates the, the wolf conservation is the fact that we have entire industries that have a profit motive to drive wolves extinct and keep wolves extinct. And those lobby groups and the livestock industry being example number one, um, really, you know, I mean, they were very successful in driving wolves extinct in the lower 48 states. They were gone, essentially, except for a little, a a small piece of northern Minnesota. Um, And and as wolves recolonize their native natural habitats all over North America, these livestock interests long for the good old days when the wolves were extinct. And when we have the Endangered Species Act protections in place, it's a federal offense for them to kill wolves. Some of them do anyway, but, but it at least provides a real deterrent because you could go to jail for a year. You could lose your house. You could lose your, your car. You, you could have your guns taken away if you shoot a wolf and it's on the endangered species list. But there are other states like Wyoming, Idaho, and Montana where wolves remain unprotected by federal law. And it's Katie bar the door in states like those where the livestock interests and their like-minded allies want to go out and they have bumper stickers on their trucks saying smoke a pack a day with a picture of a rifle scope with a wolf in the crosshairs. That's not the kind of philosophy that leads you towards a healthy coexistence with the natural world. And these lobby groups have been working very, very diligently, not just on Capitol Hill and not just with state agencies and federal agencies, but working with the media to demonize wolves. And Madison Avenue advertising firms have found that if a member of the public hears the same message 27 times, they're going to take it as common knowledge. And they're going to think, well, everybody knows that. Well, wolves are bad, or wolves kill all the elk, or we have to manage wolves, or they'll be out of control, and we'll have wolves killing, you know, human children or something. And and none of this has anything to do with reality. But if you can repeat the same lie 27 times, you can convince members of the public. And that's what's happened to North America over the last 150 years is that the enemies of wolves have dominated the conversation to the point where a lot of the public has been bamboozled into this idea that wolves are bad for the native wildlife instead of recognizing that not only are they not 
bad for the native wildlife, they are the native wildlife. And when wolves came back to Yellowstone in the mid-1990s, there was an ecological renaissance, the likes of which hasn't been replicated anywhere else in North America, where you have these healthy, native, vibrant ecosystems that have abundant bison, abundant elk, abundant wolves, abundant grizzly bears, and you have healthier vegetation systems because of a trophic cascade of, of returning balance between the elk and the wolves and the vegetation. I want to say because we the last episode we just uh, that we just recorded we and released we we spoke with a, a group up in Canada that did a sur- a national survey which to Stephen and I w- w- was incredibly informative and, and f- from what we gathered there they they said 70% overall think positively of wolves and there were other stat- statistics that they put that put up there. And, and, you know, there were some that, you know, the wolf is an iconic species. It's thought of as an iconic species up in Canada. A lot of individuals have, you know, over 50% said they would live within, you know, a, a very short distance, 20 kilometers or whatever from wolves if they were, if they knew they were there. Why do you think there's a shift? And I'm not saying you know, Canada, uh, I'm sure everybody has their issues. And we've talked, we've spoken with individuals over in, in British Columbia about uh, the way that they're, they're culling wolves and, and things of that nature. But why do you think the populace in Canada has this different view set just over the northern border as opposed to those in the West? And I'm sure you just detailed it, but what, what, what might be the difference? Are we not educating at a, at a young enough age to talk about these biological, th- these biological, you know, trophic cascades, iconic species, understanding how all of this measures down. Do you think that's part of it? I think it's 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 even more basic than that. I think that it's humans naturally fear the unfamiliar. And when I lived in Alaska, there were wolves everywhere throughout the state, and everyone in Alaska lives within twenty miles of a wolf, and nobody is afraid of wolves because. It's not a big deal. They're not a threat at all to humans. I recall once when I was up moose hunting in the Yannert Fork of the Alaska Range across the, the highway from Yellow, from Denali National Park, uh, I encountered, uh, I was crossing a, an, an opening and I encountered a couple of foxes and I, I was looking at them through my scope and obviously I'm not going to shoot foxes because you don't shoot anything that you're not going to eat. Um, but then as I continuing hunting through the clearing, those little foxes set up this pitiful howling and they were pups of the year wolves. And then they were downhill. And then from 30 yards uphill came the howls of the pack. And I was in between a pack of wolves and it's young. And I was never in any danger. And I never felt the least amount of fear because I knew that wolves are so afraid of people that there was no chance that even an entire pack of full-grown wolves, each one more than 100 pounds, which could easily tear me to shreds if they had the mind to, would never do it because it was just beyond the scope of, of a wolf's natural behavior to attack a person. They're afraid of people. And, mm. and I think that kind of familiarity is something that Alaskans have, that Canadians have, that familiarity with the reality of living with wolves is something that people in Montana, in in Wyoming, in Colorado or Utah don't really have to the same degree. Um, I've seen a wolf in the lower 48 states exactly once 
in my entire lifetime living in the West. I've lived in the West for more than 30 years. I've gone to Yellowstone a number of times looking for wolves. Haven't, haven't seen one yet. Mm. Um, but, but most people have never even seen a wolf, much less learned how safe they are to be around. You're yeah. much more likely to be killed by a skunk carrying rabies than you are to be killed by a wolf. But wolves look big and they have long teeth and they look fearsome. And you would think that's an animal that could take me. And maybe it could, but it just doesn't. Yeah. And I, that's interesting that you say that about the, the education and also the understanding of what people think. Obviously, I think it's to the detriment uh, a little bit as we, and we've spoken with people all over, you know, the Western United States and Utah and Wyoming and, and understanding we spoke with uh, individuals who generationally moved, literally moved across the country, settled the West and, uh, and breaking away from those narratives and understanding that wolves are a native species. Why, you know, and, uh, and a lot of it, some of it is wrapped up in biblical terms. Some of it's wrapped up in, like you say, mythos and, and legend and, and things like that. And what's also something that we've been finding out or, or as we've gone along in this podcast journey and a lot of what you all do at Western Watersheds Project is is talking about public lands and understanding that the public lands are for the public and how there's privatization that's happening there in terms of cornering it off so that certain individuals can hunt there, you know, feeding feeding the herds so that there is enough deer or elk or whatever it is on those things. Why is that such a detriment? Just go and explain that to people who may not be aware of it the fact that public lands along with the wildlife. And I think people focus on the wildlife in one sense, and they, they're focused on the wolf or the bear, whatever it may be, not understanding that the land itself is the thing that's also in danger is that the public land that you're going to, to see these, these animals is also in danger of being privatized or possibly being sold off and developed to because those individuals that live there that have the keys to the West might not be able to afford this stuff anymore. So just go into that if you can about why public lands are so important and why protecting them are so important. Well, one of the great tragedies of our Western public lands is that the land management agencies have always managed them predominantly for the use and benefit of commercial entities, the livestock ranchers, the miners, the oil and gas drillers, the loggers. These are the interests that the federal agencies have always catered to. And to the extent that the public is allowed to go out and hike and camp and fish and hunt on these lands, that's always been seen by these agencies as secondary uses. And the use of the land by the native wildlife themselves, the wildlife have always been second-class citizens. And 80% or so of the Bureau of Land Management lands in the Western United States are currently grazed by livestock. And when I say they're currently grazed, uh, they're currently overgrazed because the standard livestock grazing lease authorizes 50 to 65% removal of the forage plants, the grasses and forbs and other palatable vegetation that goes straight into a cow or straight into a sheep between January 1st and, and December 31st of each year. That leaves less than half of the vegetation for every other large herbivore that's out there. 
you know, which, which can include elk and deer and bighorn sheep, which can include pronghorns, include in few places wild horses. Uh, and, and it also includes things like jackrabbits and mice and pocket gophers and prairie dogs and and all of, and grasshoppers and Mormon crickets and all of these herbivores that are out there basically get the leftovers after the livestock industry has allocated the majority of the forage base. And the idea that we're doing this, that we're giving a commercial interest that 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 is only there for their own personal private benefit and profit to have access to these public resources at the at, at, to the detriment of all the other native species to the detriment of all the other members of the public that want to recreate on these lands that might want to see birds that might want to see wolves that might want to see uh elk that might want to hunt that might want to fish for trout um all of these interests are harmed because you have this heavy level of livestock grazing. And interestingly, the range management scientists themselves in their textbooks say that you shouldn't have more than 25 to 35% forage removal in any anywhere in the arid West. Ta letting alone how much you should leave for wildlife, that's just to have a sustainable beef operation. You should only have 20 to 35% forage removal. So the Bureau of Land Management and the Forest Service have been systematically authorizing overgrazing all over the West to the detriment of all the other native species. And in those little pockets that have been set aside as national parks, and Yellowstone is the prime example, you don't have that heavy impact of livestock. And look at the abundance of wildlife that you can get. And the public at some point has to be asked the question, what would you rather see? Would you rather see a depauperate, des desertified landscape that's devoid of most native wildlife? Or would you like to see a thriving, abundant assemblage of large herbivores and native carnivores and birds and, and small mammals as you see in Yellowstone? And I think most of the people in the West would rather see um, the wildlife in abundance on the public lands and would rather see the livestock on private ranch lands instead of on public lands. It's so interesting what you, what you say. And I, I want to bring up, cause I want to get to the, the, the letter that you, the letter, the editor that you wrote in the cowboy state daily. And it, there's a couple pieces in there, but the one that really stuck out to me was the numbers you, you were talking. I, I, I would imagine about when Lewis and Clark went across in the West and this really stuck out the the numbers that I, I my my guesstimation and please prove, tell me if I'm wrong is I would imagine through their count or their estimation of what the the this these are the amounts of animals that were across I guess the West as they were going you know or rough rough estimates three hundred eighty thousand wolves twenty thousand grizzly sixty million bison ten million elk thirty five million pronghorn thirteen million blacktail mule deer and two to seven million wild horses, all coexisting together in those large numbers. And now down to thousands or hundreds at best for some of these. What, from Lewis and Clark expanding across, just, just, exp just explain why this is such a, these numbers need to be put out to the public so they understand where we were simply what 150 maybe 160 years ago to now and where we where we were where the country was or where the landscape was to now why this is why we've seen such a drop is it mostly because of agriculture mostly because of ranching 
obviously extermination. What are the factors that led from all of these wildlife being displaced or exterminated? Well, when Lewis and Clark were sent west, these were the, you know, the early days, you know, we had just recently become the United States from being colonies. And, and they were moving west into a landscape that had seen a few explorers and fur trappers, but basically no settlement at all. And so this was a landscape of the original wildlife assemblage, of the original healthy ecosystems, of the original uh, indigenous people that had lived there uh, for thousands of years, uh, coexisting with this native wildlife. And what they what they what Lewis and Clark saw and described in their journals was this amazing panoply, this American Serengeti of of wild species everywhere. And, and you had 60 million bison and you had 10 million elk, which is 10 times the number we have today, living side by side with 380,000 wolves based on the scientific estimates of how many wolves were there at the time. And what it illustrates is that 380,000 wolves in the, the continental United States was, was not overpopulated. That was the population that allowed for this amazing diversity of large animals. And uh, the idea that we have this today, well, if you look east of the Mississippi, the vast majority of that landscape was privatized and converted to farmland and completely depopulated of much of its native species. As you moved into the Great Plains, a lot of that uh, landscape was converted to large-scale um, farming and, and today industrial-scale agriculture and, and single-crop monoculture on which no wildlife can find a home. And then as you move into the west, west of the Rockies, between the Rockies and the Cascades, these are the landscapes that never were heavily settled, heavily developed, heavily converted to farmland, and remained largely as, if degraded, at least uh, native ecosystems. And, and those were then emptied of their wildlife, at first by market hunting, later by the livestock industry that wanted to eliminate the wolves, eliminate the grizzly bears, eliminate the mountain lions, eliminate the prairie dogs, eliminate the beavers, and, 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 and domesticate these landscapes that were still owned by the federal government to the, to the point where they could be maximally profitable for raising cattle and raising sheep. And so it was all about human uses of the land that, 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 that were dominant uses of the land, as opposed to the indigenous people that were here before us that coexisted with the wolves and, and made no effort uh, as far as we can tell, to try to drive the wolves extinct or the grizzly bears extinct, even though they too were competing with them for food and space. But they found a way to coexist and live harmoniously with not just the 380,000 wolves, but the millions of, of, of native large, uh, large animals. And you know, I think it's important to note that, that some of those large big game species were driven extinct. We lost the Merriam's elk out of the out of the southern New Mexico mountains. We lost the Audubon's bighorn sheep out of the uh, out of the Great Plains. That those species are gone. The the heath hen that used to be found in the Northeast is gone. It's it's extinct. It's gone forever from the earth, and it'll never come back. 
And, you know, interestingly, one of the narratives that's so predominant in wildlife management is this idea of a North American model in which, you know, we have these white saviors that come in with modern wildlife management techniques and manage all the wildlife and bring back the wildlife populations. Well, we only have 1 million elk today. There were 10 times that many at the time of Lewis and Clark. That's not a very good success rate. With all of our modern wildlife management techniques and all of our heavy-handed interventions and habitat manipulations, we can't achieve a tenth of what the indigenous people had before we got here. And so I think one of the things that is incumbent upon us as, as Americans to, to really look introspectively at is the question of, you know, how can we refashion our society and our relationship with nature such that we don't dominate, destroy, degrade, uh, fragment, um, and disrupt the natural processes so much, but instead live in harmony with the earth and its entire community of life. And we can be an individual species member of that community of life instead of being the dominant controlling force that we pretend to be today. Right. And that's something that we were back in back all those years ago, like you were stating. What are the what are, what are your answers to some of the arguments that people make when they say the North America model is successful, that it's meant to help bring up the the ungulate populations, like you say, the elk, the deer for the consumptive community. Do you feel the non-consumptive community is heard enough through that or that the model is something that needs to be reworked and that, like you were saying, if we tweak some things, make some things different, it could feasibly work. I know we spoke with Dave Stalling and uh, Dave Stalling is is a you know, is a hunter who is an anti-hunter and I love speaking to him, but he really seems to think that the North American model needs to be changed drastically or possibly gotten rid of altogether. What do you think about that? I think there are some elements to the North American model that are beneficial. The idea that, that wildlife are a public trust resource that should be managed for the benefit of all the population and not be privatized. I mean, that's a beneficial thing, Um, but certainly the North American model is very heavily based and has been somewhat warped um, from the original intentions of Aldo Leopold, who was the father of wildlife management, um, to to become more of a like a business model in which state wildlife agencies often view themselves as as being businesses that provide for their customers and their customers being hunters and anglers only and not those members of the public that want to see healthy ecosystems or non-game species or do wildlife viewing. And so I think wildlife management agencies could and should be a lot more inclusive about what publics they serve. And it's not just the hunting public and it's not just the angling public, although I am a hunter and an angler too. I think hunters and anglers uh, get far too much of uh, the dominance of the, the attention of the wildlife management agencies. And meanwhile, the, the species that are that are going extinct are the non-game species that aren't getting attention because you can't sell a tag, uh, you know, or have a drawing uh, for for people to to pay large sums of money to uh, to commodify them. And so, you know, one of the things that I think Aldo Leopold would be probably spinning in his grave about is is the idea that 
um, that wildlife are, are now looked upon as a financial resource rather than you know, a species in a community of interdependent, uh, you know, ecologically, you know, knit together um, species, each one of which plays a, a key part. And, and we emphasize too much, I think, those animals that we hunt for game or we fish for the, you know, for the pan and, and we don't pay not enough attention to those species that, uh, that, that aren't of any immediate economic consequence that we can see. But as we're learning today, as these species start disappearing, the pollinators are disappearing. Well, we didn't pay much attention to them. They turn out to be really important to produce the food that we eat. Well, wasn't right. that unfortunate that we, we we weren't paying any attention to that? I mean, and and every species that out that's, that's out there has a role to play in this in, in this ecosystem, and we don't know even a majority what is of, of the knowledge that's out there to be known and discovered about all these different species and their interrelationships. So we need to pay have a, a, an approach of humility um, and not tinker too much with the machinery of nature that we don't really understand and maybe not aren't even that qualified to to tinker with yeah i mean you talk about like you say the pollinators the bees the the butterflies a lot of these species are you know there's always stuff in emails and mail that hey the bee, the bees are dying the bees have been dying for a long time and like that's if the bees go or the butterflies go like you say the pollinators that is the that is literally how things get planted how things continue to grow and you're right, not being paid enough attention to. Because, and I think there's some of this too, where you see, obviously, the bear, the lion, or the wolf are the poster children for a lot of these conservation efforts because big animals can be seen thrown on a poster. But like you say, there there is a whole other ecosystem below that. Like you say, the jackrabbits, the rabbits in general, the 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 prairie dogs, the black-footed ferrets, all those under, you know, those other animals that are underneath that nobody really pays that much attention to. If those species start going, then, you know, the bigger species aren't going to have anything to eat. It's just, it's a whole cascade effect. I mean, obviously I'm not telling you anything you don't know. Um, tell, tell everybody too, because I saw this in your letter also, just tell everybody what the Animal Damage Control Act was and what that meant. Because this, I think, was in the 1930s, correct me if I'm wrong. And that was the same, and we're still on this, you know, where we came from, where we had all the, a plethora of species out there. And this was to, this was not helpful to the species back then, correct? This was more extermination. I, correct me if I'm wrong, or just tell everybody what that meant in the, in, in the, in the history of the West and how this uh, continued to either harm or help wildlife. Well, you know, in the 1800s, when the war against native wildlife really got started, and you know, the the elimination of bison was was you know kind of a real figurehead effort, and and you know, kind of presidents and generals talked about the need to get rid of bison so that they could bring the indigenous tribes into subjugation and and relegate them to, to reservations, um, but at the same time as the livestock industry was expanding throughout the West and herds of cattle and herds of sheep were being driven out into the interior West from Texas, from the coastal states like California and Oregon, 
um, you know, what happened was that the, the, the livestock ranchers started to try and get rid of all of the things that might possibly eat a cow. And so they drove the grizzly bears extinct. And grizzly bear is on the California state flag, but you won't see one in California today because they've been driven extinct and they're still extinct. The wolves are just now coming back in California um, because of that that big extinction glut. And it wasn't until 1915 that, that Congress first appropriated the first federal taxpayer funds to kill wolves. Up to that point, it was all bounties and individuals going out and doing it on their own. But Congress got involved and, in, you know, on the eve of World War One, um, you know, to to get involved and and, you know, subsidize that. And it wasn't until 1931 that the Animal Damage Control Act was passed by Congress. And it, it basically set up an agency within the U.S. Uh, Department of Interior to to kill wildlife for the benefit of farmers and the benefit of ranchers. And it was there to commit ecocide and to, you know, to domesticate the landscape by getting rid of anything the farmers asked them to. Um, and, and, you know, this has been an agency was originally called Animal Damage Control and now is called USDA Wildlife Services. And it's still out there and it's still aerial gunning coyotes. It's still trapping wolves. It's still snaring species and it kills hundreds of thousands, if not millions of individual animals every year at taxpayer expense for the benefit largely of the agriculture industry. And why we allow a federal agency to kill native wildlife, even one of them, it ought to be against the law because they are disrupting the native ecosystem and they're doing it intentionally because this disrupted native ecosystem is more profitable for sheep ranchers and more profitable for, you know, wheat farmers and more profitable for, for cattle ranchers. So, you know, the idea that, that this very, very small proportion of the American population that engages in these agricultural pursuits gets to dictate wildlife policy across vast millions of acres of public and private land and, and gets to have its own hit squad its own federal death squad that goes out uh, with, with, with special planes of people leaning out of the cockpit, gunning down animals from the air uh, at taxpayer expense and with taxpayer dollars is really kind of a scandal. And it's it, it makes us look pretty barbaric and, and pretty, you know, I mean, the idea, the idea that this has anything to do with wildlife management is, is just an affront to wildlife management because it's largely pretty uncontrolled. Ooh. Um, yeah. I, wow. Because I, I, again, I read that in your, your letter to the editor and it's just, it, when you see it on in the written word and when you, when you've seen it and you've seen posts on Instagram about things of this nature, it, it I think that's what it takes is the full front, the, the really has to hit people in the face in order for them to take notice. I feel like sometimes two things. Why do you think there's a disconnect from the federal government and these agencies about the way they manage wildlife, because there is an outcry, a public outcry for a lot of these these uh, practices, trapping, aerial gunning, sniping, a lot, all of this stuff. There is a public outcry for it, and and again, really not listened to on the other end. I know a lot of it is political. I know it's a lot of who's in office, and on the other side of that. Are there individuals or groups that you are working with with Western watersheds that are actually trying to 
change and look at the non-lethal methods of protecting these lands, protecting these ecosystems that that are have you've been able to get through and show there's a different way to do this. Well, certainly there's a there's a large and growing community of conservation, animal welfare, and and ecosystem-based organizations all across the West and all across the country and spreading across the world as well that are demanding more ecologically responsible management. So for instance, a couple of years ago when Western Watersheds Project wrote a petition to relist wolves in Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming, we had 70 other groups signed on to that petition supporting us. And the basic idea was that the Endangered Species Act demands that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service make its endangered species decisions solely based on the best available science. So we laid out a very clear uh, argument that the state management plans for wolves in Wyoming, in Idaho, in Montana, were not adequate regulatory mechanisms that were going to conserve wolves, but instead recipes for continued wolf decline and decimation, possibly leading to extinction. And if you look at these wolf management plans, for example, in Wyoming, 85% of the state has no control at all over killing wolves. You can hunt them every day of the year. You can hunt them without a limit on how many you can kill. You don't even need a license from the state game and fish agency to hunt and kill, kill wolves in 85% of Wyoming. And as a result, the state of Wyoming has effectively kept wolves extinct across that 85% of the state without even the use of poisons. Just that effort of uncontrolled recreational killing is enough to keep the wolves extinct. And that was by design. And only in that little 15% of Wyoming, that's the wilderness areas surrounding Yellowstone National, Park, National Park, do wolves yeah. survive. And even in the confines of Yellowstone National Park, where wolves are supposed to be fully protected from hunting and every other kind of human killing. Last year, because of the permissive Montana um, regulations for wolves, a full quarter of the wolf population was killed by hunters when it was lured out or stepped out of the park boundaries. So we don't even have strong enough regulations for Yellowstone National Park to protect the wolves inside our nation's first national park. Those wolves that you know are more valuable to the public for, for, for viewing and observation than any wolves anywhere in the country. We can't even do that. And that's how bad these plans are. In the state of Idaho, they basically opened it up to unlimited wolf trapping and snaring on private land year round, unregulated. That's not wildlife management. That's no management at all. And you can't call that an adequate regulation that you can rely on to keep wolf populations at healthy and sustainable levels. In Montana, similarly, they've had these incredibly aggressive um, kill rates. And, and in some of these states, you're killing one third of the total population of wolves every year. One third, one out of three wolves is getting killed or trapped, shot or trapped every year. You can't call that sustainable wolf management. So we brought that in front of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And now the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service gets to have a reckoning within itself, because this is an agency that has been um, 
an ally of the state wildlife management agencies that have been driving wolves extinct. This is an agency that has tried to delist wolves in these states and been a cheerleader for wolf delisting in these states and has been an enabler of these states with their anti-wolf state policies. And, and now we get to work together with our large community of, of allies, not just conservation groups, but also tribes, but also animal rights organizations to focus pressure on the, the paid professionals inside the US, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, the career employees who are the problem here, who are the roadblock to returning wolves in these states to the endangered species lists and give them the protections that they obviously need based on the science. And, and the backstop for all of this is the law. And you know when the when Congress in the early 1970s passed the Endangered Species Act, in their wisdom, they stated that endangered species decisions must be made solely on the basis of the best available scientific and commercial information. Politics and political favors can't come into it. And yet, for wolves today, that is what's driving the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, in our view, because they have had all of the plans of all of these states put in front of them in these listing petitions, in one case, an emergency listing petition, and done nothing as so far to, to rectify the situation. And, and, and this is a miscarriage of justice that, that cannot stand. And just as our organization and multiple other organizations in our plaintiff group and other organizations in other plaintiff groups were able to successfully overturn the delisting of wolves outside these three Northern Rocky states under the Trump administration. We were successful. We won in court. We're laying the groundwork for the next court battle if it comes to it. And it, you know, the question is for Joe Biden and for Deb Holland and for Martha Williams at the head of the Fish and Wildlife Service. Do you want to be told by a court that once again, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service isn't doing its job, isn't following the best available science, is pandering politically to these anti-wolf states? Or do you want to turn the page and actually get back to the business of protecting and restoring endangered wildlife, which after all is the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service's mission? I can't agree with you more. And it's been, I know that they were supposed to come out with a ruling, I believe it's it's well over a year and a half, still waiting for that report to come out. And like you say, anything, I mean, I, I would equate this to, you know, if you're handing in a term paper and it's, you know, well, well overdue, you know, so there has to be some sort of consequence to not doing your job or not giving the, you know, even if it's, I just don't understand why it takes so long. I understand why, but you know I mean? I understand the reasoning, but for it to sit, and not have a have a determination on this topic, which is so divisive, and you know it really shouldn't be as divisive as it is. But you know we we get our, we get ourselves in these lanes that unfortunately there's a lot of I'll I'll say yelling in quotations, a lot of yelling back and forth at each other, and we are more alike than we want to admit. And I really think that there is there is a way forward, but there's not enough people that want to get not enough of the right folks want to get in the middle in the radical middle space and say, look, we can come to terms with things that we can hear all sides, make a determination so that we can have these flourishing ecosystems and these 
individuals who are, are, are ranching or have livestock grazing are able to use these non-lethal methods so that they can continue to make a living because let's face it, a lot of them are on the land that if they, these operations go under, I'm talking about not like the mass production, you know, the, you know, the huge, you know, mega farming talking about the people that actually, you know, are, are, you know, have, have these acres of land in the West that if they lose their land, we got trouble because someone will come up, scoop it up for pennies on the dollar and there will be development and we will not have these, these public places or these public spaces anymore, this public land anymore. Do you agree with that sentiment to a degree or is there, do you see that there's some sort of light in there that people are starting to come to the realization that we need to come together and that there is compromise and there's ways to be able to coexist like the indigenous peoples used to with all of the wildlife around them, you know, with wolves, with grizzly, with lion. You know, I, I think that the livestock industry's protestations that wolves are, you know, a, an existential threat to their operations and their profitability are, are just exaggerations. And you can just look at the Yellowstone ecosystems. The, the, the proof is in the pudding. In, you know, in, in the 2015 data from Wyoming, Montana, and Idaho, in the area that was occupied wolves that, with, with wolves, there were 1.6 million cattle in that area. Of that, of those 1.6 million cattle, 148 of them were confirmed to be lost to wolves. That's, that's one one hundredth of 1%. That's hardly any. That's not even enough to be worried about if you're a livestock operator. And if you look at Montana, and if you look at Wyoming, and if you look at Idaho, those lands around Yellowstone National Park, those ranchers are doing just fine. And those ranchers are not going out of business, and they're not going anywhere. And their cattle are just as abundant as they always have been. And while and, and wolves have had no significant impact on their operations. And so for the livestock industry to pretend and to tell the public uh, that that wolves are are this terrible, um, unbearable burden for them to try and, you know, work with is is just fundamentally a dishonesty that that our society can't afford to to tolerate anymore. And so as wolves come into places like Colorado, where wolves haven't been since the 1940s, you know, we're trying to bring these realities to the ranchers of Colorado and 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 let them know that hey look you know the odds of your cow being gobbled up by a wolf are are astronomically small and yes there have been in Colorado from those few wolves that have come down a few losses of of, of cattle and calves a few um have happened and so there will be some and the idea is well you know if you're a rancher and you're raising your beef that, you know, the end goal of that, that head of beef is going to be to go to a slaughterhouse. And it ends up on a wolf's dining plate instead of in the meat department in your local Safeway. If, if you are made whole because the state agency or a federal agency gave you a compensation that was equal to, or in many cases, even greater than the value of that lost cow, then you should just take it as, uh, you know, that's the cost of doing business and you're not actually losing any money. So you can coexist with that from a business standpoint. So if we can move it out of the realm of, 
you know, kind of the emotional investment in keeping wolves extinct, move it towards a business model where cattle operators and sheep operators, you know, can recognize that that they can continue to, to operate and be profitable with wolves or without them, um, then I think that we've won the battle. And, and all of this overheated emotional rhetoric on the part of the livestock industry, crying that the sky is falling, um, you know, it has no reality. And to the extent that we continue to feed into that, you know, into that narrative by giving it legitimacy, I think we're hurting, you know, we're hurting the public, we're hurting our, our decision makers, and, and we're certainly hurting the native wildlife. What do you give, what's your, what's your level of optimism for Colorado, the reintroduction for the studies that are going to happen over the next you know, five, 10 years, whatever it's going to be. How do you think that's going to go? Do you think they've done the due diligence? We've spoken with a lot of people from Colorado uh, on on all sides. We went to Aspen. We did an event there, part of an event uh, to talk with individuals from all sides. Um, it seemed fairly positive. It seemed as though there was, you know, everyone's willing to, to talk and to, you know, have some compromise one way or the other. Um, what are your feelings on Colorado as we're literally months away from, you know, when, if hopefully Colorado can acquire, you know, acquire the first set of wolves and, and pause on the ground by the end of the year. I, I think the wolf reintroduction in Colorado is going to be a, a, a major success for Colorado, and it's going to be a major success for wolves. Um, just looking at the way that the introduction went in Montana and Idaho um, in 1995, you know, that was, an, you know, a much more hostile environment into which wolves were inserted, and those wolf populations were able to grow and thrive under the protections of the Endangered Species Act. And I, I feel pretty optimistic. Now, the state, Colorado, the Colorado State Wolf Management Plan, um, it, it's pretty darn permissive in uh, allowing the kind of retribution killing of wolves if they take livestock. We have good science that shows that killing wolves in response to livestock depredations does not decrease the number of livestock losses in the future. So it's pointless. Um, I think that with improving um, conditions in Colorado, we can get that, that state management plan fixed so that it comes into alignment with the science because the ballot initiative that, that was passed in 2020 in Colorado specified that the state was supposed to be managing the wolves based on the best available science. And so I think that we can we can reform that state wolf plan. I think the wolves will will thrive and will show that nature finds a way in Colorado. And that, you know, 30 years from now, Coloradans will be hearing wolf howls ringing from the mountain peaks in their wilderness areas and will say, wow, what a great thing that was that in 2023 and 2024, the first, first wolves were brought to Colorado and and boy, all of those doom and gloom predictions from, from certain cranks at the extreme ends of the spectrum sure didn't come to pass. What do you say to those that are on the other side of that or are skeptical or are just looking at it and saying, this is just going to be a repeat of Montana, Idaho. You, you've been doing this for 30 years. What do you, what is your, what's the information you would give to those folks? I would say, what's your, what are your talking points or what's something that you would say to them to, to ease those tensions if they're, if they're around? Well, you know, I, the, the most, the most interesting argument that's been brought forward has been brought forward the idea that, 
well, gee, we're just going to reintroduce wolves to Colorado and they're going to face all these hostile ranchers and all these hunters and they're going to be killed. So we're just, you know, we're just putting them in, in harm's way. Um, but the reality is we're going to be taking these wolves probably from Idaho, maybe from Washington in areas where it's also not safe to be a wolf. And, and we're going to be reintroducing them to Colorado and the Colorado uh, state protects the wolf under the State Endangered Species Act, which is a bigger amount of protection than you have in Montana or Idaho or Wyoming. Uh, in fact, way bigger. Uh, and, and even under the Endangered Species Act, even though the wolf was designated as an experimental non-essential population, they're still protected from illegal take uh, or for people that, that, that are you know poachers that are out there illegally killing wolves. Um, and so those people will still face very stiff, stiff legal consequences. So I think that we can we can foster this wolf recovery, and I think that we will get the kind of ecological renaissance in Colorado that we saw in in um, in Yellowstone as well. Uh, sooner or later, the wolves will show up in Rocky Mountain National Park. That's an area where the elk are heavily overpopulated and are doing a lot of damage to the native ecosystems. We could see that same kind of renaissance in Rocky Mountain National Park as we saw um, in Yellowstone once the wolves are allowed to get there. And you know, one of the things that's really interesting that is that over the past year, there was a there was a scientific treatise that was published called Rewilding the American West that provided a blueprint for how we are going to restore nature in the West. And the idea was take large core areas of, of relatively pristine habitat, retire livestock so that you don't have these kinds of conflicts with large carnivores, bring back the wolf, bring back the beaver. This is the way that you can most quickly recapitulate the successes of Yellowstone. And I think we've got a chance to do that in Colorado. Future of wolves in the West, Eric, where do you think it all stands? Because it's there are so many things going on in so many different states. Obviously, extremely excited that wolves are repopulating the northern part of California with those four packs that are now that are there. Um, obviously, Colorado coming into play and they could be moving around. What do you feel in your gut about the, the future of wolves, the future of the landscape, I would say the wild landscape uh, in these Western United States? I think that the wolves are proving that nature will find a way if we can, we as, as humans can just take our, our, our boot off of her neck. And that the wolves are coming back. And if you don't have wolves, wolves are coming. And we should have regulations in place that prevent the same political interests and the same lobby groups that drove them extinct in the first place from doing it again. And as long as we do that, as long as we have regulations in place and restrictions in place that prevent the irresponsible destruction of nature, the wolves will repopulate their native habitat and, the, and nature will find her natural balance once again. I, I, you know, I, I feel that, that California is the best example because California has an Endangered Species Act that likewise prevents the illegal killing of wolves. And that is what is allowing these wolves to disperse all the way down into Sequoia National Park and one wolf making it almost to Los Angeles. Um, the, these wolves are, are generalist species. They are not tied to a very specific habitat. They have a wide variety of possible prey, everything from mice all the way up to deer and elk. Um, they can do well if only we don't interfere too much in their daily lives. My last question is when you hear the word wolf, what's the thing that comes to your mind? 
the howling wilderness, nature untrammeled by man. This is the this is what we have lost and what we have to regain if we can only be wise enough to foster the recovery of the natural world. Love that. Eric, just tell everybody where they can find information about you and about Western Watersheds Project. You can find Western Watersheds Project at www.westernwatersheds.org. You can find us on Facebook. We are occasionally posting on Instagram. And, you know, just one of the things that, that all of your wolf lovers can do is just set up a Google alert on Google News to alert you to news on wolves. And you'll get all kinds of news on wolves from many different groups that are working together and individually to foster the recovery of this magnificent animal all across the country and all across the world. This is a nationwide movement. We can't be stopped. The wolves can't be stopped. And, and we encourage everybody to join in the celebration because this is a major environmental victory, perhaps the biggest victory that, that our generation is going to have. Eric Mulvar, man, thank you so much for the history lesson, for giving everyone the information that they need and really being a steward of, of the planet, the earth, uh, for wolves and for all wildlife. It's, it's great to have you on the front line to make sure that everybody gets uh, the knowledge that they need. Thank you so much for your time and, and for being here on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Well, it's a privilege to be able to, to work for my living, trying to protect and restore nature. And thank you very much for, for, uh, for promoting and, and for publicizing these important issues to your audience and, and for having me here on the podcast. You got it. Anytime, you're welcome back anytime. Just hang on one second when we uh, sign off. We'll be with you next time, everybody. House to you all out there. Bye, everybody. Looking for more information about Wolf Connection or the podcast? Please visit our website at wolfconnection.org where you can donate, sponsor a wolf, or become a volunteer.